Yes, hello, Tyler O'Reilly here. Before we start, just wanted to remind everyone of Bazaar Plus, our membership program where you can get extra episodes every week. Just simply go to the link in the show notes. It's Sports Bazaar. Welcome aboard, everyone. Anyone isn't happy, we call it all off immediately. The hunt for the weirdest. There you go. Can you put out a fact sheet with this? <laughs> you my mind. I don't. I can't <laughs> keep up. Strangest. Catastrophic, amazing, bizarre. Multiple layers of stupidity coming together. What could go wrong? Most unbelievable. It's like a Coen Brothers movie. Stories to ever occur. And they're only going to get weirder from here. Get comfy, everyone. Some good, some bad. And some just bizarre, which we love. In the world of sport. How many chimneys could you do in a day? I've researched the tour. To France, not Sports Bizarre. Right, police are called in. <laughs> For the players. Dennis Rodman is telling you to calm down. Testicle soup. Can I just stop you for a second? Don't act like you've never done this. I feel like once again we've strayed away from what I've researched. It's time for the leaders of the hunt. An old couple who've got our spark back. <laughs> it's Titus O'Reilly and Mick Malloy. Welcome to the latest edition of Sports Bazaar with my good self, Mick Malloy and, of course, Titus O'Reilly. What are you bringing to the table this week? Well, Mick, in our part of the world, Melbourne, where we record this yes. in Australia, it's spring carnival time. One of the great sporting carnivals in the world, bar none. Massive. Like, racing in Victoria has always been huge. Mark Twain came to the Melbourne Cup and said it was like something he'd never <laughs> seen before. Always had this big pull. And we're recording this just before Caulfield Cup. Yes. And then there's a series about four... Massive days of racing at Flemington, and then there's so it's including the famous Melbourne it. Cup, which is uh, anywhere around the world. If you follow racing, Huge. you know what we're talking about. So I thought, well, let's do a racing story to sure. get this because if there's one sport that gives no shortage of bizarre moments, uh, of colourful characters, <laughs> of colourful games, and this guy <laughs> might be the most colourful. Here we go. That's a big that's claim. A, that's a huge claim. So we're talking about a guy. His name is Robert Standish Seaver, often called Bob Seaver. Okay, and so Bob was. Born in London, 1860, and his grandfather had been this renowned figure. He'd been in the Royal Society for Science and Scientific Discoveries. This is in the era. Like an explorer's club Yeah, or sort of the, the Victorian gentleman's sort of scientist. He was one of them, really gotcha. renowned. Bob's dad, though, literally didn't work or do anything. Like, okay. did nothing. So he's from the aristocratic They've got class. an aristocratic background, but then his dad does nothing. His dad dies uh, when he's five. And so he's left to be raised by his mother. And it was a very loose upbringing. He ends up going to school in France for a bit. He bounces around. He doesn't really do anything that exciting. Yeah. He's a bit of an adventurous lad. He's got great gift of the gab. Right. Loves to tell a story, mm-hmm. even as a young kid. And he's incredibly good looking. So everyone's charmed by him. He's like from a young kid, this thing in all of this story. He's going to go all right. Everyone says this guy is like the most... People wanted to hang out with him and loved him. His sure. charisma was through the charts. So about this time when he turned sort of um, 16, sort of a loose upbringing, moved around a lot, no parental figure. At this time, England's recruiting people for the Frontier Armed and Mounted Police of South Africa. Okay. So this is like before the build-up to the Boer Wars. Pre-Boer Pre-Boer War. Pre-Boer War. This yeah. is when... There was a bunch of African tribes. So this was the Kafir Zulu and the Suto Wars. Yes. Which is really where a bunch of Africans thought Africa belonged to them, not yeah, the English. They? Yeah, yeah, it was a crazy they? notion that they had. Yeah. And it was literally like this was recruiting, like it was colonial police that would go out and stop raids and keep the basically the general populace suppressed. Sure. 
He's like, he's about his friend of his, Thomas Bosby. He says, I've enlisted. I've enlisted into this. You should come. He's 16 years old. Are right? they all of similar type? Is this yeah, something are, that the upper all, It's the upper class. Areas. Go sort of, to South Africa. Well, it's sort of like the, if you're terrain a, of terror. If you're really rich and you're the son about to inherit it, you don't go. It right. tends to be the third, fourth sons <laughs> or the ones that maybe yeah, are like him. His dad didn't yeah, do much. He's we can the, spare that one. <laughs> he's got the, like, he's not going to make it on anything yeah, else. So yeah. they, You're kind of Prince Edward. <laughs> he's, he's exactly. You can go. Uh, not you. In fact, we're, we're keen to send you to a war. <laughs> well, it's like Prince Harry. They said Prince Harry yeah, in the you war. Go. You know, sure. You're just the, you're not the heir, you're the not spare. The, not the top guy. Yeah, you're not the top guy. You never want to be that. He finds out his friend, Busby, is enlisted. He says, yeah, I've enlisted and another friend of theirs, Bloxham is his name. We don't have a first name for him. He's going as well and they're sitting chatting to him and Bloxham says, I'm getting cold feet are going. And his mother is furious that he's going. Well, why has he got cold feet? Is it dangerous? It can be. I mean, you know, you could get hit by a spear while you're shooting someone with a gun. I mean, you're massively <laughs> out. But no, it is like people will die. Like it's a war. It's just. Now what I'm seeing is Michael Caine in Zulu. <laughs> yeah, well, that's, this, this, this is, is the era, right? This is what we're talking this about. This is what we're talking about. Did you know 10,000 Zulus <laughs> will be coming over? That's yeah. what Michael Caine, by the way. It's good. Was it all right? It was yeah. actually way better than I. <laughs> Than had any right to be. I can do any voice you want. Just, just ask. <laughs> you're, the ma- <laughs> you're a man of a thousand voices. All right. Who's rabbit? got cold feet? So Bloxham's got cold feet and they're sitting around one night and Siva's 16 years old, right? These are young guys. And the mum's like beside herself bawling and Bloxham's like, I can't get out of this. And Siva says, you know what? I'll go in your stead. Don't worry. Leave it with me. He goes, well, steps up. How can I do? And Bloxham's like, how can you do that? You know, like I've gone to the recruiting thing. Just leave it with me. And this is the sort of guy he is, right? Siva rocks into the next day to the recruitment officer. It's like full army recruiting sure. soldiers and everything. He walks in and he says, look, when I uh, signed up the other day, I gave a fake name of Bloxham because I thought I might get cold feet and I just wanted to come in and say, my real name's Siva and I'm, 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 I'm all in. I'm good I, to and go. I don't, and the, the recruiting officer goes, this shows great courage. <laughs> <laughs> and moral fiber on your behalf. You are exactly what, what we're, we're looking, looking for. for. It took a lot of guts to come in here and admit to your mistake. Now, it's a total lie, right? Yeah. And this is where he's written. They like the cut of his jib. They like the cut of his jib. We like you, Siva. And Siva is, you can go and Google this. It's free online. He actually yes. wrote several books, but one of them is his autobiography. Okay. One of the most unreliable documents in history. <laughs> Hasn't been fact-checked? It is. I fact-checked bits of it and it is so far up, but it is a rollicking read. Like, it's of its time. There's you racism all through it. Okay. There's all these amazing bits all through it, but he writes with real, like, panache. A bit self-serving? It's, oh, it's totally self-serving, but it's like sort of this boy's adventure It's a cracking read. It's a cracking it? read. Like, it goes through all this and he says this was the first, going to this recruitment officer was the first big lie I'd ever told. He soon got the taste for it. Well, he got the taste for it, but he also said, we all have the, our own definition of a lie. Mine is that it is a false statement which does someone harm, but where no ill is done and good results, then it is no lie. Good cannot come out of a lie. <laughs> Hence, when good grows, a lie could not have been sown. Wow. Now you'll find he often lies <laughs> and by his own definition, good does not. But that's count. what he says, right? His so it's book, only a lie if it causes oh, yeah. trouble in, in the universe. Yeah. So the, his biography, though, which was written, this is my favourite in his biography, it was written like in 
tens around right. that time. So a bit, quite a bit up this. But he right. says of his time in the South African uh, regiments, he says he prints a couple in his autobiography of the marching songs they sung. Right. And one of them's about like some woman who gets into an affair with someone and the bad language is it is, you know, she had Humpty Dumpty with him. That's the bad. And he writes underneath. Well, and this is in like scandals. 1910. He writes, of course, I can't say that. You can't sing those songs anymore because the world's changed and everyone will get angry with you. And he's like literally <laughs> complaining about being cancelled in 1910. The very first example of wokeness. <laughs> no, yeah. You can't use what the phrase Humpty Dumpty. What yeah, it's like Humpty Dumpty do. And he goes, you know, and then he says, I think the reason you can't say these things anymore is because women now all work. And this is 1910. It's PC it madness. It just hasn't changed. <laughs> so there's a whole paragraph on it. It's fantastic. So anyway. I was he, really hoping you were going to sing it to me in the style. I should have wanted of the. Uh, so on September 22nd, 1876, he sails over uh, to the Cape of Good Hope. And on the boat to South Africa, he loses all his money playing cards. Absolutely everything. I like this guy. He says, by the time we reached Cape Town, my silver watch and telescope had gone in a raffle, the ladder being <laughs> twice put up, I having won it the first time. So he kept putting <laughs> things into the raffle. He's playing cards. He's doing everything. He gets along with everyone. Everyone yep. loves him. He loses all his money. By the time he lands, he's yes. got zero pounds, no money. Okay. He's given away like his watch, his telescope, Pretty anything. much turning up in his underpants. Yeah, pretty much. And so he gets there. In, when they arrive, he's made four friends on the journey. He arrives and they're like, what are we going to do? We've got no money. And between them all, he having none, they had about four pounds on them, which is not a lot. Yeah. So he says, well, let's go to the best hotel in Cape Town. <laughs> <laughs> Which is not it's what the you only logical thing to <laughs> the do. Only logical mate. thing. It was called the Royal, and upon arriving, they entered the billiard room. And Siva says, oh, "I'm on to him now. Just act like we belong here." Yeah. And the, and his friends are like, "Wow!" He just walks in like I own the joint, right? Starts chatting to people, making some friends. Lo and behold, they find out that people are betting on games of pool. <laughs> and so he says, "Give me your four. Give me the four pounds." <laughs> he gets it, and he starts playing, and he starts winning. Yeah. And wins enough to fund the whole huge night out. They win a whole of money. Instead of like keeping some, they spend it all that night. Fair call. In a thing. So he says, we, this is what he actually said. He said, we left the smoking room. <laughs> you would have just, this is for you, this era. I love it. All right. We left the smoking room of the Royal Hotel Merry Men. We spent the evening at the theatre and after various exploits, which I need not graphically describe, oh, returned to the ship Return to the ship late. Late. So they're yeah, absolutely okay. hungover. They do the same the next night and make even more money and have an even bigger night. I love this. So this is what he's like. Then the fun in Cape Town's over. He shipped off to the headquarters of the fronted armed. Hey, weren't they even police. doing any work in Cape no, Town? No, that was a stopover because they're like just a, outside of Cape Town. So I think a Cape like Town. Like sailors on shore leave. Yeah, Cape, Cape Town's like they control and then they're pushing out into various bits of South Africa oh. where there's the, the, the local tribes and then there's also the Boers over there, the yeah, Dutch and sure. farmers and that. So there's all these sort of things happening out there. So to, he's heading out onto the frontier basically okay. and he heads out there. And he says, our job was just to keep down native raids. He says the local tribes would try and steal cattle and do all this sort of stuff. So it was literally a bit like the Wild West in America sure. where they were trying to suppress these people and the his job was patrolled. He says it was completely boring and he hated it, right? Okay. Because the excitement's there for the first minute and then he's like, well, this sucks. <laughs> <laughs> so he gets transferred because he actually gets promoted to the rank of corporal. Why did he get promoted? 
I think everyone likes him. Every bit of this book, the stories, yeah, they all just he just he's he's good fun. He drinks, <laughs> he smokes, he gambles. He's great with the ladies, yeah. apparently. Uh, he's, you want him on your team. He, yeah, you want him on your team. You'd never want to lend him money. Okay. We'll just, we'll just foreshadow. <laughs> so he gets moved to this tiny town, uh, Dordrecht, which he makes new friends in this town. This is as corporal with the magistrate and a Dr. Foster, who's the medical practitioner from the area. Right. And they play pool every afternoon at a small hotel. For money. For money. But Siva's so bored, he starts complaining to Dr. Foster about how boring it is being in the army. He's got a low boredom threshold, this bloke. He, he needs is, action. These days he'd be ADHD in two seconds. Like, <laughs> you know how everyone now has ADHD? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he would have been right up there. So he's bored and he's just playing pool. And he, and he right. says, it's incredibly lazy work, but I'm bored. But even the incredibly lazy work is more work than I really like doing. Okay. So that's his. So, the, so the doctor says, well, I'll write you a honourable discharge and you come and be my assistant. What? So he says, yeah, sure, I'll do that. What a scam. He says, compared with the arduous, if brief work I'd done in the force, this fresh life was an indolent, if not a luxurious <laughs> one. So he's just sitting around in this city. In, How long has he been? At, so he's been in the force for? Yeah, he, he's not, only been out there for about six months at this point, right? Like he's, he's not, it's, it's not like he's been around for years, right? He's unbelievable. He, he gets bored of even this, of hanging around with the doctor. The doctor. And leaves. What type of doctor was he? He was just a medical practitioner. So he was just like in these days, there's probably like, you know. The leeches. Leeches, and stuff yeah. Like well, that. Probably yeah, leeches. Yeah, yeah. Probably monkey testicles. No, monkey testicles. <laughs> it's all that. Electrocution. <laughs> yeah. uh, so anyway, he gets bored and takes off to another town, Rueville. Uh, he finds work teaching English to a Dutch family. The person he meets in Rueville says to him, are you looking for work? He says, not really. And they say, there's a Dutch family that wants someone to pay, teach their kids English. And they'll pay a lot of money. And he was like, great. So he says, he okay, I'll go. No, but he's just going to teach him English, right? He doesn't speak Dutch at all. So he says, all right, I'll do that. He speaks French, but he goes, I'll do that. So he goes there and he finds out when he shows there that the, the daughters of the family aren't kids. They're 20, right? Oh, okay, there's trouble brewing here. So he says, oh, okay. He's, he then starts a love affair with the 20-year-old daughter. Of course he, he says, does. the study soon developed, this is his words in his book, the study soon developed into a rendezvous on the banks of the Orange River and finding the young lady a most apt pupil, I can say without fear of contradiction that she was thoroughly acquainted with English in a very short time. <laughs> what does the Dutch word for Humpty Dumpty do? This is his whole book, just things like that. You know, so he's like, away. He's away. Would that have been scandalous oh, for yeah, the yeah. time? So it's, yeah. luckily for him, just as it's getting a bit like, wherever he is, it always gets a bit. I can see this guy jumping out of windows with his trousers in yeah, one yeah, hand that kind guy. of stuff. Yeah. Is that it? And then war sort of breaks out again between <laughs> some of the tribes. So he raises a volunteer army <laughs> and goes and fights in one of the major battles well, there. Hang on, how does he do that? So he it's just like goes he gets to a, a local lynch, town. Like a lynch mob You've got to remember, he's 16, 17 now, and he goes to the local town and... The local tribe are all raiding. So he says, we've got to fight back. So he raises an army and goes and marches them. And, and it's just that, I mean, it's a... Is he in charge? Yeah, he's in charge. <laughs> he's 16, he's in charge because he'd been in the army for like five minutes, yeah. he says. So he marches them up and they get, get involved in a battle where they um, basically charge on their horses and, you know, right. all that. He talks up like, you're reading his biography, they, he won the battle for them. But So he does all this and it's, it's all going well, but then he decides after 18 months in South Africa, sure. he decides, well, I've had enough of this, I'm going You're home. bored again. 
I'm bored. So he goes back to London. On the trip back to London, he wins all his money and loses it all. <laughs> so arrives back in London broke. Stone broke again. So he begins to just slowly starts gambling on cards and gets starts getting a horse racing a little bit of gambling. Right. And at one stage he wins. Is this a problem for him? Massive problem, right? <laughs> like, well, I don't think it was for him. He's one of those guys that money comes and goes and he just but there's no one there saying gamble responsibly. I don't think there's, there's, no, there's, there's no one to call in these days. Nah. So he wins three thousand pounds on the Manchester Cup, which is a huge amount of money. Oh my god. Loses yeah. it straight away. Straight away loses it, right? He's so loved by all the bookies because yes. they just see him coming. He's got the worst luck, right? He then decides, well, I'll, you know what I'll do? I'll become an actor. So he starts acting. He starts playing in Dublin, London, and Bombay. Any good? He, he was okay, I think. He wrote several plays as well and things like that. So he was a real renaissance man. But he goes to India and he's in Bombay to do some acting. He gets in such debt that he had to flee the country because money lenders are up in. And not money lenders like, we're going to tell you off, like to kill him. Right. And so he has to stow away in a London-bound steamer to escape. This is a great story. And he's literally in. You, you know, got me. I'm in. He's in the chimney or whatever of the steamer <laughs> <laughs> to hide and comes out covered in soot. Bit of blackface. Yes. Well before. That, so that's how he gets back to London on that. Well, how, why was he going to India for acting? I, I didn't think India was he's like a, he's the, a, he's They already had a kind of Bollywood style industry. Well, I think going, it was because the, the English were running India. So it was going to oh, perform for all the colonial authorities and stuff. The top end of town. Yeah. Yeah. They want some theatre. They want some theatre. And he I'll did Shakespeare in. and all that sort of stuff. And mm. then he loves adventure, right? Like this isn't a guy that sits still. So if someone says, do you want to come to India? He's he doesn't like, think it through. Well, also, wherever he's in any place for any period of time, it pretty quickly becomes clear it's time for him to move on from that place. <laughs> and we'll get into some of why. So yeah. he then gets to that. So it's 1881, May 30. He says this was the day where he decides I'm going to, Get out of acting. I've had enough of acting. I'm going to focus my life because it's been such a success so far yeah, sure. on racing and gambling. Right. Because this is what he says. He dabbles in a few of the dubious harps, yeah. doesn't he? So he's, he gets into that and he starts making some money. He then goes on a bit of a trip to Italy, goes to Rome and various places. Yeah. This was more for fun, I think. He ends up in Naples in 1882 and he receives some unwanted attention from the Italian police. Okay. Um, he doesn't go into why. Is it warranted? With him, it would undoubtedly be warranted. It comes to their attention no somehow. Doubt. He cheats at cards. He cheats at billiards. He's, he's, he gets he's, in debt. He's loose with, he's their, loose. with their women and folk. Yeah, he's always in debt. He's always oh, He borrows money and never pays it back. Sure. So while he was uh, being chased by the Italian police in Naples, <laughs> in amazing coincidence, he decides at this point off the top of his head, and even in his own book he says this, he suddenly develops an instant but deep passion to travel to Australia there because he's standing at the docks and he goes, where's that boat going? And they go, <laughs> Australia. And he I'm goes, on it. I'm on. So he get, jumps on the boat to Australia. Now, I'm going to stop you here. How much money can he lose on a trip to Australia? <laughs> this has got to be the longest journey. I know. He would lose his stuff, win it back, lose well, it. This one we don't know. Where he doesn't go into this much and there's not a lot of But there are some of his other trips back to London, which we'll get to. 1882, he lands in Adelaide. Adelaide. Well, May 30th, 1882. I He's, thought he said he hates boredom. <laughs> <laughs> Why? Why would he go to Adelaide? Well, he doesn't stay in Adelaide long. He, he arrives and decides 
But he doesn't go into why, but he says it was to honor like a family member. But I think he got to start calling himself Robert Sutton. Now, when someone says, I'm just changing my name after fleeing from and, Italy and going to, to Adelaide. Adelaide. Um, so he becomes Robert Sutton for a while. He starts working as a bookmaker on behalf of a man called Winham, who is funding the operation. Right. So Steve is taking bets, running the book. He's taking money. Before long, though, within a month or so, Wynnum accuses Siva of faking accounts, which sees Siva suddenly develop a passion to go to Melbourne. <laughs> so he goes to Melbourne. And in Melbourne, this is where he changes betting in Australia and right. sets up the way before the internet bookies operate in Australia for like the next 100 years. So right? how does he do this? What's his plan? He's got a letter of introduction from someone in Adelaide to... Captain Standish, Frederick Standish, who's the chairman of the VRC, who's the guy that was also the commissioner of police and founded the Melbourne Cup, okay. who we have to do a podcast on. He is. Uh, you've told I've me told about you this bits guy. Of this guy, and we might do that around the Melbourne Cup. We might put sure. one out on him. So he's got this leverage. So he takes it to him, and he gets this introduction, and he gets made a bookie. And he's noticed in Adelaide, bookies have only become legal in Victoria and most of Australia in the like year beforehand. Yeah. So he notices that when you bet on tracks in Australia this period, what happens is bookies just look at, they wander the course. There's nothing that says they're a bookie. And they go up to people and they say, do you want to put a bet on? Because it had been illegal, but yes. even now it is legal. That's how they do it. They want to put a bet on and they're like, yeah. And then there's no cash changing hands. Right. It's all written in a written book. Written down, yeah. And then you have to find the bookie after. It's all a bit of a pain. Tell me about it. They tend to go and look for people who are, look like, you know, rubes that have come down from the sure. country or something and it's all a terrible experience. And he thinks this is not really a great way of doing this. And it's also that it was seen as like it wasn't a great thing to be a bookie. So they were kind of a bit, it was all done a bit under the table. Sure. Siva has no concerns about public opinion. And so what he does, instead of wandering the course seeking customers, he sets up a stand with a board with the odds. He has a clerk to take down, take the money. Here I am. So he takes cash and he pays out straight after the race where the other bookies settle. Often a couple of days later, there's a settling hotel where they all settle it. But he says straight away after, you come back with your chit that we've written for you, we'll give you the cash straight away. So he, there it he, is. he stands up in front of everyone because he's got the theatrical acting thing he starts going who wants to bet and he says you sir you look like you you know and he entertains the crowd because he's been an actor like he's he draws a crowd yeah he draws a huge crowd he's charismatic so he starts taking in the first time at flemington he takes about 90 percent of the action on the day wow. and everyone's any like, trouble from the law no because it's suddenly now legal all the other bookies hate his guts and they haven't gotten on to the idea that you don't have to sneak around anymore. Yeah, they don't have to. And so they all start doing that. So he starts doing this and they all are like absolutely love. He's got the kit bag that you saw bookies. Oh, he introduced the that. famous bookie bag. Backy bag. He introduces that. I always wanted to go out one night, you know, and see a bunch of bookies dancing in a nightclub around a bookie bag. You know, <laughs> you know like girls dance around a handbag. Yeah, they're handbag. How good would that be? Uh, so he's done all this. And so he take him. So he's making it a theatrical art, right? And so... It dominates this style that he sets up. They yeah. all adopt it, and it becomes the dominant style for the well, next years. Well, that's impressive, years, right? That yeah. is genuinely a revolutionary idea. So Melbourne City newspaper is still recording his exploits fifty years later. They're still yeah. writing articles about how much he was. In his first year at Flemington, he made seventy thousand pounds with the help of three clerks, 
and in biggest bookmaker in Australia. The punters were so happy they loved him because he paid out straight away. Yeah. They all called him good old Bob because he now was back to being – he was Robert Sutton <laughs> and Siva. Oh, Bob Sutton. Um, and so they all covered him. And then he also becomes a bit of a celebrity because of this but also because he gives – while living in Melbourne, he is often up in Sydney too and he gives lots and lots of reasons for the newspapers to write about him. Sure. So in 1882 – he goes to this um, sort of market and meets a stallholder by the name of Amy Everett and he has a whirlwind romance and marries her. The marriage lasts four years and then she divorces him on the grounds of cruelty, desertion and adultery. <laughs> That's what's got on his <laughs> Tinder profile. He doesn't really argue it because the charge of adultery is not that hard to believe. By his own count in his lifetime, he produced 17 illegitimate children. Wow. That's there a lot. That's by his own count. <laughs> That's why don't count. They're the illegitimate ones. He has some other children Fantastic. that weren't illegitimate too. <laughs> so this is the talk. No wonder he's always on the move. <laughs> yeah, this is right. So this is the talk of the town, um, but it wasn't the only thing they were all talking about him. It started off one day uh, what sort of led to his downfall in Melbourne. Yes. It was a pigeon shoot conducted by the Melbourne Gun Club. Okay. It's hard to get in trouble at a pigeon shoot. I would have thought so. Siva starts betting on who could shoot the most pigeons. Right? Because well, it's allowed, isn't it? Yeah. Um, with a guy called Lord Deerhurst, who's the aide de camp to the governor of Victoria. Yep. So, quite a powerful man. It comes time to settle the bet. An argument ensues between the two. You see versions of events. <laughs> it's all like he was wrong. The guy didn't sure. pay up the money and all that. Yes. You can't believe a word he says, right? right? But it ends up with them coming to blows at a hotel in the city. And he gets charged with assault. Before he has to go to the hearing in 1887, he manages to take a short trip home to London. He does come back for the assault cars, but he goes home. And on the ship over, he meets a Mrs. Armstrong. He's great on the ship journeys, right? Hey. She's on the way to London to build a career as an opera singer, and she's traveling with her husband and son. Despite this, they have an affair on the boat. On the boat. Miss Armstrong goes on to find great success in London. She makes a name for herself as Dame Nellie Melba. <laughs> what is going on? She's now, one of the most famous you. opera singers of all time, you know. She's so an from Australia, institution, institution in Australia, Australia, but was huge over in Europe too. And and she divorces that husband not long after. They were already on the rocks right. when that all happened. So she acquired an adventurous life, you know, outside of all this. So he's doing that. Kept that quiet and all the biographies on Dame. I know. He then comes back to Melbourne after this. And he's sentenced to 14 days jail for the assault on Lord Deer. Good on him for coming back, though. I think he kind of had to because, you business, know, business things and that. Um, he appeals the sentence and it's actually, he wins the appeal. It's quashed. It's not assault. So he doesn't go to jail? It, no, it's seen as they were both just roughhousing and it was both of the men's problem. Um, but by this point, he's been expelled by the Melbourne Gun Club and the Victorian Club, which is where the bookies settle their bets. So if you're not part oh. of that, it's very hard to be a bookmaker. And even though he wins the appeal, Deerhurst is powerful enough to make sure he doesn't get his bookmaking license back. <laughs> He's also at this point got this absolute reputation for cheating at cards, billiards and everything. So he decides this is a good time probably to head back to London. So he's not well-liked in certain circles. He's, he's well-liked by the public and he's well-liked with a lot of people, but anyone he gets into any money sort of, yeah. like he's a cad, you know. Like we know these guys. You know these guys. Fun. As long as you're not involved with them in any meaningful way. There aren't many cads these days. <laughs> cads no. were of the era, weren't they? But you know how someone who's really nice can be incredibly boring? 
And sometimes someone who's not that nice can be incredibly good fun as long as you're not… On the receiving end. Or, or in business <laughs> with them or… You know what I mean? Like, yes, I do. Often these guys are incredibly fun. I and name then, you five. <laughs> Two of them are in this room. <laughs> yes, far away. So he goes back to London and he straight away starts betting. He sets up a… He becomes famous in the press once again. Everywhere he goes for big betting plungers. And he sets up a dodgy betting syndicate that has numerous fake names and all this sort right. of stuff he does. To manipulate odds? Manipulate odds, take bets from people and then mysteriously they never see their money again. Yep. Like he's doing everything. He also realises he needs more money. So he funds it by marrying Lady Mabel Emily Louisa Brudenal Bruce. She's the sister of the Marquis of Aylesbury. So he marries into big money. Wow. He met Lady Maybell. They were both engaged to other people. <laughs> Doesn't seem to be an impediment to him in Nothing any way. He's, he's lawless, this guy. Yeah, it's lawless. It's two days before Lady Maybell was due to wed and he <laughs> talks her out of marrying this guy. Oh, my God. And um, marry him and they both call off their respective engagements and marry each other in 1892. Lady Maybell announces she jilted Lieutenant Crosby from Mar- she got re- said no to him because he was asking that the bulk of her fortune should be settled on him and she didn't want that and yeah. she was worried about going bankrupt and she also said um, issued a writ against the lieutenant for £25 for money she lent him from the last Ascot race meeting. So she's like, I didn't marry that guy on these grounds. Little does she know. She, knows, she, <laughs> she pulled the wrong rein she here. She pulled the absolute wrong rein because I tell you what, by the end it's not going to work out. So. Yeah. Despite Lady Mabel paying him all this money and giving him all that, by 1894, um, so just two years into their marriage, he's already been declared in those three times bankrupt. Oh, bankrupt. So he's constantly losing money. She keeps bailing him out um, and he begins using her money to buy racehorses. And funnily enough, because he's been at the track so much, he's actually quite good at quite picking. Quite good at picking. Yeah, so they all become, a lot of them become champions, you know, and does quite well. Amazingly... You'd be shocked. The marriage didn't last, despite uh, the very strong. Shame. Yeah, I knew you'd be shocked. I thought they were bonded for life, those two. <laughs> yeah. They're like childhood sweethearts, you know? It makes it question uh, romance, doesn't uh, it? It's like an early version of the notebook. <laughs> <laughs> but it is. All right, yep, go on. So Lady and they, they split up at this point and in 1898. So he's been with her six months. He leaves her with a son, a daughter, and completely broken. <laughs> Dear. He's like a wrecking machine. Oh, he's it's okay. just carnage. He somehow, and then, and then he's way to check, please. He's out of there. Yeah, he's out. He, and then somehow he then moves in 1898 after this divorce to a place called Toddington Park, which is a big estate. Yes, like, like you know, often there's a big stately home be called Toddington Park, okay. and then there's a village you made near that there. Up? No, and then there's a is like, Toddington Park sounds yeah, like yeah, Toddington very Park. You can Google this; it's an amazing house. <laughs> and so you know the local manor. The town and everything would serve the local manor. He he was in this big manor, right, to the point where Tottington Tottington Park. Park. He likes it. Then the village remember him very fondly to this day Do because they? he in the grounds puts in a top quality cricket pitch. He hires the groundsmen of Lords to build it. <laughs> this is after. How does he do this? Well, well, money just is. 
money to him is just it comes in, it goes, goes out, out, he gets it, he you know, it's just this constant it's to be spent. So he's got the he's got the groundsman of lords to build him a cricket pitch. And then he holds annual cricket matches there. He pays the top players to come. WG Grace comes no. and brings his a WG Grace twelve to play. A, a random one. His name William Billy Murdoch, who was the Australian captain when the yes. Ashes were born. He comes and plays there. Of course he does. So they're all there. WJ. So this is the kind of guy he is. Like, is he just, betting on this? Yeah. Is he betting. fixing this? Is there? He's doing it all right. Plunge. So he moves back to London at one point. How's he funding himself at this point? Betting plunges, but a whole bunch of they don't go into all the data. But he's got like he's cheating at cards. Stuff. He's he's got good horses, but he's also cheating at cards. Fixing odds, gambling a lot. He's got a number of rackets. Rackets. He he borrows money, doesn't return it. It's like <laughs> it all catches up over time, but he gets I bet you he owes WG Grace money. Oh, still yeah. Still to this yeah, day. Still to this day. And it, we get into some other exciting ways he makes money too, but he's just yeah, constantly doing this. Um so he's like, you know, he's having this cricket game. So so he leaves people in his wake. He has money yeah, no matter what, yeah. right? His success on the track continues. His most notable horse, Scepter won four of the five English classics in 1902, missed out on the Derby. So the Derby... Well, that should be enough to bankroll you well, that's forever. Right. The Derby, the Oaks, the 1,000 Guineas, the Jeez. State Ledger and the 2,000 Guineas, they're the, the big five. He wins all of them but the Derby. It doesn't matter how much money he makes, he loses. Because he's hiring the guy from Lords to build him a cricket pitch in his backyard. It's there to be spent. <laughs> it's there to be spent. He, like, he's, he's got no nest egg, this guy. Do you know, he's not <laughs> saving for a rainy day. Yeah. He's got it. And it's going. This is the guy that got into crypto <laughs> day one. Like, the first man in history to make it rain. <laughs> yeah. So the other thing, while he's in London for a bit, yeah. he actually high, rents a house off a young Winston Churchill <laughs> who's, who's in out. East Africa. He's over in East Africa because okay. well, Churchill's a big war correspondent. I've got to tell you this. Yeah. I bet you he owes Winston Churchill money. <laughs> I bet you to this day. <laughs> so, yeah, he's All living right. in Winston, one of Winston Churchill's houses in London. So, he's like, this is the guy he is, right? He's just at the centre of everything. Everything's happening. Winston Churchill was born at Blenheim Palace. Yeah, so this was one of his London um, places. So I've been to Blenheim there, Palace. Have you? What's it like? Oh, it's unbelievable. So, just uh, a, a quick history lesson for uh, not is it like the English. Totty, is it as good as Tottingham <laughs> Park? Talk amongst yourselves. For anyone in Australia, it was for the first Duke of Marlborough. Yeah. He'd done excellently in war. His grandfather, so, yeah, yeah. So here we go. So we've got this massive estate and it's handed down hereditarily. But it's got to the point where I think it's like the ninth Duke of Marlborough uh, is a bit of a dick. And I go out to Blenheim Palace on this day and it's not open. Yeah. And I go there, go, oh, mate, I have any chance we can have a poke around. I heard a bit about this joint. And I go, no. Yeah, yes, no, you can't because we're not open today. I said, how's it going? He goes, oh, there's a bit of strife. This is about 20 years ago. There's a bit of strife. I go, with who? He goes, oh, the, the new, the like ninth jig of Marlborough is really, he's like, he's no he's no good, this kid. He's a bum. They <laughs> go, we're trying to change the law to take Who's off him. Because guy? He, Who's this guy? Who's this guy talking to? He's like the groundsman. Or like, the, <laughs> I don't know, he's got a rake or something. Anyway, at the time he's saying this guy's a bum, all you see is this puff of cloud of dust on the horizon. Yeah. And this car, like a Lamborghini, comes flying across the bridge, across the lake, yeah. pulls up out the front of the palace, music, doof, doof music going, doors open, guy falls out, fumbles round. It's like Wolf, it, Wolf, it's, 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 
Engine is still on. Guy fumbling around for keys opens, opens front door of Palace and shuts it. The crazy groundsman. <laughs> I risk my case. And that happened in front of me, unfolded live. That's always better than you getting a tour. <laughs> Do you know That's, what I mean? Like, I got the tour. I got I got the inside running yeah, on yeah. what was happening. This is how it really works. So there you go. Well, this he sounds like what Siva probably it's, was it's like. He's probably related to Siva. It's probably Siva's great-grandson, whatever it is. <laughs> so True story. It's Because these houses are amazing. So he's broke again, 1904. He's so broke he has to sell Septi's champion racehorse yeah. for £25,000 just to pay. Yeah. Off. So he has these moments where – he does pay everyone back. Not usually he doesn't, but every now and then when it, he manages to religiously, sell or is it just guys he knows or likes? Or? When he when he needs to. So in this yeah, case, he needed to. Right. So he sells. He, he has something to sell to pay it off. So he sells Scepter, twenty five thousand pounds, gets the money, goes straight away. Yeah. That same year, Siva brings a libel charge against a guy, Sir James Duke. Duke has accused him <laughs> of being. A thief, a card cheat, and how, a murderer. How dare he? Because there'd been rumours. Murderer that, I'll live with? Well, yeah. But card thief? There'd been rumours that card players who upset Siva fell off balconies. Now, there's no evidence of this anywhere. but I just love the idea that you've besmirched his reputation. How dare you? I need to defend my honour. Well, so Siva sues him for libel and they go to court and the jury finds Sir Duke had not committed any libel because it was all true. <laughs> they did it, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, we love you, Stephen, but can't help you, mate. So he has to pay all the costs for the failed case. Oh, yeah, he's got to sell something else now. Uh, yeah, that's right. So he's like, you know. So Siva had also at this time started a racing paper called The Winning Post, which he okay. mainly used to settle scores in the racing world and occasionally <laughs> blackmail people. What? So there was a guy called Jack Joel who was the nephew, and this is in 1908, he was the nephew of Barney Bonato, who was Cecil. Well, he sounds like a character. Yeah, he was Cecil Rhodes' major competitor in the diamond markets in South Africa. Bonkers Barney Bonato. Yeah, billionaires. Like the Bill Gates of their days, you know, oh, Mark Zuckerberg's of the Titan. So, and Rhodes was obviously, Cecil Rhodes is obviously the big one, yes. but this was his main rival. Bonato. Huge amounts of money, right? Jack Joel was the nephew of Barney Bonato and Siva, and this is partly how Siva funds himself, says, I'm going to run a bunch of stories against you in my paper unless you give me £25,000. Okay. That's, that's pretty much straight out extortion. Straight out extortion, right? He'd already published some damaged articles before. <laughs> One of them, he'd printed a picture of uh, this nephew, uh, Jack Jones, in between two murderers. <laughs> So it wasn't subtle kind of wow, yeah. sort of thing. What happens there is Jack Joel, instead of, um, and he's part of a, this big powerful family, he doesn't pay, he goes straight to Scotland Yard and uh, says, I'm being blackmailed. I'm being blackmailed. So this case becomes this celebrity case of the, it, it's written up in the New York Times. Wow. This is Blown how big up. it is, like huge, Yeah. right? So sort of like, you know, the big cases like the you sure. know, Simpson case and stuff like that. It was like that big. <laughs> and so Johnny Depp, Amber Heard, that Yeah, kind of that thing, sort of yeah. stuff. So. It's in the old Bailey. Siva's relying on his charm to sway the crowd. Yes. Um, Playing to the jury. Yeah, he has a great lawyer who cross-examines Jack Joel and makes him cry in the cross-examination. <laughs> and the combination of this and Siva's charm, yes. he wins the acquittal. Oh, my God. <laughs> which people are like, in le they still, if you Google this case in legal things, it's like, 
one of, it's known as one of the great cross examinations of all time. But also, like, how did because Jack Justice lose is not blind? Game? Yeah. You can see him bawling, <laughs> and the other guy looking great. He's acquitted. The crowd in the courtroom break into cheers. <laughs> The Lord Chief Justice Alveston pronounced the scene disgraceful and the London Times writes an editorial saying we are rapidly becoming the most emotional of people <laughs> and they're all scathing of it. But he's a wow. celebrity. This makes him a, a folk hero. He's sort of becoming yeah. a folk hero as well. Things don't go so well. March 1920, a guy called Richard Wooten, who's an Australian-born horse trainer, who's yes. over in London and with a fair bit of success, he brought a libel case against Seaver. Because Seaver had used the wing post to accuse Wooten of being a mastermind of race fixing, which is the kettle <laughs> calling the pot. Black. This is unbelievable. So another high-profile trial kicks off. And Seaver's so popular with the public, despite like his history and everyone, they don't care, um, that huge crowds escort him to the Old Bailey for each six days of the trial, cheering good old Bob, <laughs> like a soccer crowd <laughs> taking him to the thing. It's that big. It's a huge willing trial where yeah. there's petty insults regularly being thrown between Seaver and Wooten. Yeah. At one stage, Seaver questioned Wooten about the credentials of one of his associates and Wooten replied, no, he's just an ordinary honest citizen. And Seaver said, not such a blackguard as I am. And he said, well, I wouldn't contradict you on that. Then three days of this, Justin Darling declared in frustration, I shall never get to the bottom of the wickedness in this world. This is the judge. <laughs> to which Wooten's reply interjected, I'm sure Mr. Seaver will help you, your lordship. So he's found oh, guilty. Very of, British. Yeah, he's found guilty of libel at this point. And the ruling once again leaves him bankrupt yeah. for about the 18th time. Um, he's also branded in the media at this point as a cheat. It's revealed he was a cheat at cards and billiards in Australia, England, and Monte Carlo. <laughs> Monte Carlo. Deterred by all this, he still manages to get bankrupt one more time in 1932. I think he gets, it's like everyone's an adventure. So then he gets bankrupt. He picks himself up, dusts himself off. To him, he and he goes, what? Well, what are we doing now? It doesn't him, right? Like the normal people would feel shame or to him it's you make your money, you lose it, you make it, you right. lose it, it's, and you have fun doing it. Fantastic. You don't care you're, if everyone else You're not going to die wondering. He's never. He also wrote several books. He, his book, an Unreliable Autobiography from 1906, which is free <laughs> online to read in PDF form and everything, is hilarious. Um, he wrote a volume of travel essays. Did it sell well? It sold okay. It's so unreliable that, you know, he wrote two other books, one of travel essays and a couple of novels as well. So he wrote a fair bit of stuff. He died in the 8th of October, 1939, at his home in Ifield Wood, Sussex. Just Quite in time to dodge the war. Yeah, yeah, just <laughs> dodge the get out of the war. He was 79, oh, which okay. for the life he Very lived cool. is amazing. So much so that when he died, though, the New York Times printed a huge obituary for him. Oh, wow. So this is how big he was at the time. It said, Robert Standish Seaver, whose career as a racehorse owner, gambler, and society man of the Victorian and Edwardian days, made him one of the most colourful personalities of his time, died today in his Sussex cottage at the age of 79. The man who was once almost a millionaire died penniless, broken by the horse racing that made him. So he was ground zero for what was the colourful racing identity in Australia. 
I love it. And, and England. And England. And, and one of the larger-than-life characters that you just occasionally get thrown up. I would need a copy of the autobiography. That is bedside reading for me. That'll oh. be my Fifty Shades of Grey <laughs> for, for this week. Thank you once again, Titus O'Reilly. If you enjoyed that, you can sign up to Bizarre Plus, our membership program, for the chance to get an extra episode every single week. The link is simply in the show notes. Cheers.